tell me how Gary Chambers got to be Gary Chambers. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm turning the page. Go ahead. Normally, when, when I do this, I start off by asking you to tell, tell us your story. We jump right into issues. So I'm jumping back. Who's Gary Chambers? How, how did Gary Chambers get to be Gary Chambers? I'm a church boy. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up... Uh, so I've got a complicated story. Uh, my mother and father were high school sweethearts. They went to McKinley High. Uh, they were from Old South Baton Rouge. And uh, they got married young. Uh, my mom and dad bought a house. My dad was a mechanic at Richard's Honda back in the day, in the 80s, um, and bought a house in Glen Oaks on Poinsettia Street and had some children. Uh, my mom committed suicide when I was two months old. Um, which left me motherless and with a father who ended up becoming an alcoholic for the first 10 years of my life. Um, and then my aunt and uncle stepped in, uh, like good black folk family does, and took me, and I had an uncle with Down syndrome that my parents cared for, and they took me, and my dad uh, kept my sisters for a while, and then, um, so I was raised by my aunt and uncle uh, for the first 13 years of my life. Um, and so my mom, uh, we lived in North Baton Rouge because my aunt and uncle, she was from South Baton Rouge, and my dad, my other dad, uh, William, is from Scotlandville. Okay. Um, and so he graduated from Scotland, Scotlandville in 1962, um, and they were, I think my parents got married in uh, 64 or 65, um, and they've been married ever since. Um, and so we, I grew up in Scotland till I was six, mm -hmm. and then we moved to Glen Oaks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I grew up middle-class black in Forest Heights, um, and I didn't go to school with white kids until I went to Northeast in seventh grade. Um, I went to Southern Lab. I was a terrible kid, Pastor. <laughs> I was a terrible kid. Um, but my story originated there, right? Okay. Um, and at 13, my dad had kind of bounced back and got on his feet. And because I was a terrible kid, my mom said, you're going to go to Florida and spend a year with your dad. Um, and so I was supposed to go to Jacksonville and stay for eighth grade. Okay. Um, Eighth grade turned to ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, and uh, I spent most of high school in Jacksonville, came back here after that, and I started working. Um, and when I started working, I had my first uh, what I call... Uh, I, I can't say it on, on the show, but my, my first moment where I realized I was black um, I was at the Denham Springs Home Depot, um, and uh, because I went to this diverse high school in Jacksonville, I had one perception of race relations mm -hmm. um, that was different than reality, right? Um, and my, my dad, William, who's older uh, and participated in the Civil Rights Movement, would tell me, son, you're going to learn. You're going to realize that things aren't as you believe they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so this older white guy uh, was uh, looking for a drill bit. And um, I was walking, and I heard him kind of saying it out loud. And so I went over, and I said, sir, can I help you with something? You, what are you looking for? He said, no, nah, I don't want your help. You're a nigger. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, that was in Denham Springs in 2005. Mm -hmm. um, light bulbs just started going off like, oh, it's real, right? Mm -hmm. um, this stuff happens. Um, and that kind of gave me an awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and then you fast forward to uh, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, 
Um, and we had just started the Rouge Collection when I was like 27, and our mission was to be this uh, hip, diverse version of 225 uh, because I felt 225 was also white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we said, well, we can come and start a magazine, me and my two business partner friends. Um, and we did, mm-hmm. and uh, we spent a bunch of money trying to get it off the ground, and we realized that the business community in Baton Rouge wasn't really welcoming to young black professionals uh, not to spending money with, with us, right? And that was kind of my first window into seeing the the climate of Baton Rouge from the business perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the stuff started happening with like Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, in these cases, I began to write about those issues. Um, and then there was a local case um, of Lamar Johnson. Uh, he was a young man that was in Paris prison, and they said he hung himself. This was a few weeks before Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. Um, some kind of way the family got the story to me, um, and I wrote about it. 40,000 people read that story. Um, and that's what made me know this was what I was supposed to be doing, right? Um, that people cared about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, this has always been my home. Even when I was in Jacksonville, I came home in the summers, um, and I just used to be itching to get back to Baton Rouge, and I didn't know why. Um, but it's because I love this place, right? And, and it's it's in the fabric of my DNA. Um, and seeing young black men like myself uh, die either at the hands of other young black men mm-hmm. or police officers and not getting gainful employment or the opportunities to succeed mm-hmm. made me say, well, I've got this platform that thousands of people are reading. Um, how do I begin to use this platform to share more with people? Mm-hmm. Uh, met some interesting people along the way, including yourself, mm-hmm. um, who enlightened me about the history and the context of Baton Rouge. Um, and in, in enlightening me, I remember one person, uh, I won't say his name right now, but he'll know who I'm talking about when he hears this. Um, He basically gave me the budget to City Parish and said, after I was reading the Lamar, wrote the Lamar Johnson stuff, he said, now you're on to something. Here's the budget. Look at this. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the budget and realized that we were a city that was 54% black, a parish 47% black, and we got less than 2% in City Parish contracts, Mm -hmm. I was pissed off. Mm -hmm. Um, And... At the time, uh, when I got mad, I just said whatever I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just began to write about it. Mm -hmm. And I had no relationship with Mayor Holden um, and no relationship with the council. And I just let them all have it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just took the conversations that we had at the dinner table Mm -hmm. all over this city, wherever I went, Mm -hmm. and put it on a platform where people could read it. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't special. I wasn't uh, unique or different. I was just willing to say what we were all saying, and people were willing to read it. Was any of this being discussed in the church that you attended? You came out of interdenominational faith assembly. No. Do you think that the church could have and perhaps should have added a texture, a layer to this conversation. Do you think that the church is missing the opportunity, the black church is missing the opportunity so, to add texture to this conversation? Because it's an ongoing conversation uh, that, that continues even up to this day. And one of the frustrations that I have in my life is is attached to the church. You say you're a church boy. I, I ain't been in nothing but the church. I don't belong to nothing but the I, I ain't no frat. I don't belong to no civic organization. I ain't nothing but the church. And yet 
I am frustrated that the church, the African-American church, is not engaged enough in this kind of conversation uh, that that can be helpful to providing guidance in how to navigate through this this jungle that we find ourselves in. So I am an ordained minister. I skipped that part. Uh, I was going to get back around to it, but, but, so but go ahead. I, I am an ordained minister, and I used to run the young adult ministry at Faith Assembly before I was um, the publisher of the Rouge Collection and a community activist. Mm-hmm. So in my mid to early 20s, um, I thought I was going to be a preacher one day. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my, my trajectory. I'm going to be a pastor. Uh, I'm going to follow my pastor, and I'm going to serve the ministry. And one day uh, he's going to bless me and I'm going to go out and start a church somewhere or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, as life just became life, things changed. And that wasn't the trajectory I went on. Um, But I have been disappointed in the church in general Mm -hmm. um, with many of the things that have happened in our community. Um, I don't go to necessarily a woke church. Right. Uh, my pastor is a good man of faith. Uh, he loves the Lord. He's taught me everything I know mm-hmm. uh, about Jesus and him crucified. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the practical piece of how to live as a black man, mm-hmm. um, I have not always gotten that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that is not to be critical of him or anybody else that, mm-hmm. that's in the ministry. It is just a reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that because we as a community uh, viewed ourselves as progressing, beyond the civil rights movement that we thought that church could progress beyond the fight of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we've gotten away from the obligation to do good and seek justice. Mm -hmm. Um, I say that at the end of every Facebook Live. Most Mm -hmm. people don't know this, Isaiah 1 and 17, Mm -hmm. do good, seek justice, help the widow and the oppressed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That is my mantra because I'm a church boy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that the church is lacking. Any time in the Bible that God wanted to do something in government, there was a king, Mm -hmm. right? And any time God wanted the king to do something, he sent a prophet. Mm -hmm. And so I think the prophets of today have woefully... uh, underserve their mission Mm -hmm. because it is their obligation to speak to government. Mm -hmm. It's not just to get up and take a picture with the mayor or the senator or whomever and go to press conferences. Um, It is to challenge these people. Now, the prophets didn't always challenge these people publicly, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's the king, the king can cut your head off. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did challenge them. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you looked at, and you know better than me, uh, the prophet who went to David. Nathan. Nathan goes to David and tells David a story because David is the king. David can kill him. Yes. Um, David gets mad at the story. And David says, who is the man? And Nathan tells him, thou art the man. Yes. Right. I think that we don't have enough thou art the man conversations in our communities. Um, And that is the role of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the role of the prophets in our community. And if we are priest and king and all of that stuff that we teach our children, then we have to operate in that authority and that dominion. And to operate in that authority isn't just to operate in the pulpit in that authority, but to lead by example. Mm -hmm. If you look at, and and truthfully, I heard... uh, when Alton Sterling was killed, uh, Reverend Jackson had a dinner with a few of us when he came to town. And in that dinner, he told us, he said, we ain't never had all the people, right? He said, but the church always had the members of the church that they could mobilize. There is no greater entity 
within the black community to be able to mobilize people mm -hmm. and the black church mm -hmm. still. Um, this is the only organized group of people that I know of that meet twice a week, <laughs> every week. They put enough money in to build buildings and infrastructure, right? Um, yet, when it's time to do some of these monumental things we need to do, we can't find a preacher nowhere. Mm -hmm. Now, you've availed yourself to me, and there's several other men within this community that have availed themselves to me to say, hey, look, brother, uh, you fighting a good fight. Let me talk to you. Let me see if I can help you anyway. Let me give you some advice. But that has not been uh, the overwhelming trend. As a matter of fact, I've had preachers uh, who told people, you need to stay away from that boy. He caused trouble, mm -hmm. right? I caused good trouble. Mm -hmm. um, I caused the kind of trouble that brings about change, and I ain't apologizing for it mm -hmm. uh, because I believe it is what God sent us to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the church uh, is is meeting that mission of the assignment. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you get no argument <laughs> from me. I think that we spend too much time dealing with minutia and internal stuff. And internal stuff has to be dealt with. But I think that we give far too much attention to internal foolishness and not nearly enough attention to You know, we spend too much time on. worried about offending people. Yeah. You know, making somebody mad, getting, no. a, getting a tithe member that, that pays the right amount of tithes to leave because it's him that work in the government. But you, have to, but you have to understand why that is. It doesn't make it right. But I have an appreciation for why that is, because as a pastor of a church, I recognize what it takes to keep this place going. And if you are afraid of offending a certain group of people that help keep the ministry going, that pay the dollars, that keep the lights on and keep the salaries paid and keep whatever is going on going on. If you operate from a position of fear that if I irritate this person uh, too much, then they're going to withhold their tithe. And, and that's the way folk vote uh, in, in churches. It, it ain't a motion in a second. <laughs> it's I ain't putting no money in church. And, and so they're afraid of, of what happens if the dollars become constricted. You have to operate from the standpoint that I trust in God. I don't trust in the dollars. And I, I trust in God. I don't trust I in the tithe. I trust in God. I don't trust in this group, that group, or the other group. And God is going to take care of me. If this person stops, somebody else is going to start. If this group says no, somebody else is going to say yes. You just make sure that you are standing where God wants you to be. And not everybody is at that place. I wish they were. It would make it a whole lot but, better. But I, but I think, wish they were. I think the reason... I think operating from a, a place of fear in any position, whether it be a pastor, a business owner, a politician, whatever, puts you at a disadvantage. Yes. Right? That's number one. But number two, um, my generation wants to see leaders stand up and lead, right? We want to see churches be a part of transforming communities. And if the church is to survive beyond now, uh, I think that I think that you look at the numbers, it's clear. Young people are declining in attending church. Yes. Eventually, the older people will die off. Yes. And what will be of the church then? Yes. Will there always be the church? Yes. But will the church have its power 
that it does today in numbers and in and in ability to make impact I'm not sure mm -hmm. and part of that is the fear position that the church remains in instead of being in that dominion conquering position that Christ told us to be in mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, I think that if if you are concerned about losing one tithe payer that may pay a massive amount of tithes, consider that losing this one might be a good thing because you'll cut the fat and get the meat. Uh, and that if you get rid of them, maybe you'll make room for 10 more on the pew who yeah. come in and they may not make uh, what this one made, but they make up right. for the one, right? right. Uh, and so if you focus on catering to the minority view mm -hmm. rather than the majority view of our community, and the majority of people in our community are not as conservative as the church mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of people in our community want to see the church step up and say something. If Every time I watch preachers walk in the room of uh, any community event, I can always just listen because the people are going to start murmuring. Unless you in the church and that's your pastor and you love him or her, uh, people in the here he come. Mm -hmm. Here they come, right? Because it's not because people distaste pastors. It's because they don't like inactive people, mm -hmm. right? And they don't feel like I should have to give up all my comfort uh, and, and here's the other thing. If the church is paying, the members of the church are paying the tithes uh, and you are free based on the ability of the members to support you, right, then you have the ability to represent that group of people in a way. Uh, but you say something that's very crucial because most, most black pastors in this community are not free. Mm. They're not by vote. They're, they're, they're not singularly dedicated to the church. Most pastors are bivocational. A lot of pastors teach in the school system. So when you start talking about doing something that's going to upset the superintendent of the school system, they're not just thinking from a church standpoint. They're thinking from a classroom standpoint but and how that's going to affect me. A lot of pastors work at the plant and they get, they get the bulk of their pay from the plant. And so they are risk averse to doing anything that's going to upset their own personal finance. So when you say be free, that's crucial. And one of the reasons why we're not free is because we are still tied to, 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 to these very entities so, that we are combating against. So for me, I completely understand, right? because I taking the positions I have taken over the last four years has not come without a cost. Um, there are opportunities I miss out on from black folks and white folks um, that because I take certain positions, um, I'm counted out. Uh, certain people don't want to be associated with me at certain moments because uh, I'm gonna say the truth and don't care if you like it or not. Um, but for me, and mm -hmm. I can only speak for me, mm -hmm. I'd rather be at war with the world and at peace with Gary mm -hmm. than at peace with the world and at war with Gary. I understand that. And so I speak truth to power. I can't wrestle. I've got a daughter. I've got people, things to take care of just like everybody else. Um, but when I close my eyes and, and go from uh, time to eternity, I'm going to pull this whole cup out. Mm -hmm. um, and in pouring it out, that means I've got to speak to the issues regardless of whether or not it costs me something. And what you said was profound to that point earlier that uh, 
you just got to do what God says do, right? You've got to be, trust God. And so I don't know nothing else. Um, I believe in what that little woman, Edith Howard, taught me as a little boy that uh, faith without works is dead. Right. I got to do the practical part, right. but I got to have faith in God. And if God be with me, if God is for me, who can be against me? Now, these temporary situations of discomfort may upset me, may upset my finances, may upset my situation. But like my grandmother told me, go to sleep and keep getting up in the morning. Mm -hmm things do get better. Mm -hmm. And so while you may lose this one opportunity, the one thing that I've seen happen time and time again is that there's always enough. There's always enough. Uh, enough comes in at the right point to be able to sustain me and my clan, to be able to do what we have to do. And my job as uh, the head of that house is to figure out how do I grow that which I have, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not gonna grow it from a position of fear. Mm -hmm. I just can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, I can't make anybody else have that same position. All I can do is live in my truth. Um, and in living that truth, hope that other people begin to recognize, uh, because the truth is, they can't take us all out. Mm -hmm. If more of us spoke out, you look at the, the Colin Kaepernick situation in the NFL, right? It, it's easy. If all the NFL players, black brothers, had kneeled, you're going to find them all? You're going you gonna to find them all? Mm -hmm. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. But because of fear, bench rider, whoever you are, that feel like I ain't where he at, so I can't do what he do, right? Truth is, yes, you can. And if all of us do it, mm -hmm. it sends a larger statement. It sends a larger message. That unity piece uh, is a big problem mm -hmm. within our community. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if we'll ever be fully unified because typically when, when unity comes, we unify around an issue, mm -hmm. uh, not around the, the global community. Uh, but we've got to figure out what does unity look like, uh, what does progress look like, and what are the pieces to the puzzle that create that. We often say this is chess, not checkers, right? Uh, if the if life or business or whatever is chess, not checkers, who's the pawn? Who's the rook? Who's the bishop? Who's the knight? Because each person, each piece on the board moves a certain way. Correct. If if I'm this one and I go two up, two over, right? Or if I'm the one that can only go at a diagonal, you've got to know what's everybody's move and how do we move to win. The other side has realized that if this is a game of chess, 3D chess that they play, right? They know this one goes this way, this one goes that way, but it's all in sync together. I think we put checker pieces on chess boards and say, everybody gonna do this. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way that this goes. Mm -hmm. We don't get in enough rooms and have strategic conversations as a black community mm -hmm. and say, look, this is what's going to work. How do we get there? We don't do enough of taking care of the whole farm right? Uh, certain people eat from the trough, certain people don't. If I don't like you, we don't bring you in. All of that stuff works to our disadvantage. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you time after time where we've had uh, opportunities to accomplish stuff at the Metro Council. Where if, what, if, if we had just had the black council member stay with us, we'd have got something done, mm -hmm. right? Or at the school board, where if we just had the black 
person run their position the way that you're supposed to, we would have won for the night. But because it doesn't benefit that individual long term, mm -hmm. that individual says, well, I'm going to do what serves me, mm -hmm. not what serves the people. Mm -hmm. And we've got to begin to recognize that, recognize the people who do that, move them to the side and be like, look, I love you, but I can't I can't work with you on this. We got to mm -hmm. go in a different direction and we got to work with people who want to get to the collective goal. I also think that we got to have an agenda. Right. Uh, we talk about wanting to see change happen. What does change look like? What is the agenda? What are the specific things we want to see happen? Who are the pieces that help us make it happen? And then what is the strategy to accomplishing it? Uh, we don't have strategic conversations in this community enough. We complain. We fuss. We holler. We talk about what we don't like. But we don't strategize enough. We don't plan. And everything that I've been a part of that has actually moved the needle, whether it was the police reform, whether it was getting the ER in North Baton Rouge, whether it was keeping the zoo in North Baton Rouge, there was some level of strategy. Now, it might look like chaos at some points to mm -hmm. people, but it is a chaotic strategy. There's always a method to the madness. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that every... Uh, group of us has done that and part of that is establishing trust and relationship building um, and without that trust it's hard to make people begin to work together because if i don't trust you um i'm not going to stay committed um and the the lack of commitment to the goals is where i think we suffer mm -hmm. i said a whole lot there no but i i agree with most of what you said uh the trust factor is is major uh I am older than you. Uh, I didn't realize how much older than you I am, but but I am older than you. At this stage in in my life and and in my career, such as it is, I become far less uh, judgmental of of other people's motives. I recognize that they don't share my 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 passions, uh, and I don't share theirs. Uh, I tend to be a live and let live kind of guy. If I can't get along with you, that's fine. But I, you know, I, I ain't interested in. I don't have the energy to fight with you. Uh, I, I'll just, hey, how you doing, and and move on to the group that I can work with. I think we spend, we as black folk, spend too much time. We as church folk, spend too much time fighting fights that aren't worth fighting. Uh, uh, Fourth District Association, uh, which this church is a dues-paying member. I have very little time for him, very very little useful. Uh, but I ain't mad with nobody. Uh, it's just that their agenda is not my agenda. Louisiana Baptist State Convention, which I pay money to, uh, which this church pays money to, I, I, I ain't got no use for it uh, because their agenda is not my agenda. Uh, what I wish is that those groups, fourth district, six parishes worth of churches, 200 and some odd churches in this community, would would galvanize themselves around social justice issues. There would be no need for it together, Baton Rouge, if the fourth district stood up and, and, and spoke to those issues. There would be no need for it together, Louisiana, if the Louisiana Baptist State Convention would stand up and speak to social justice issues. So my concern is not to pick fights with folk that ain't going to go nowhere. Uh, my concern is to find a handful of folk, because that's all that it's ever been, is a handful of folk who are willing to do the work and get with them 
and and let's get the work done. When Dr. King first went to Chicago, uh, the majority of people did not want Dr. King to come. Uh, there was a small contingency of pastors that said, no, we're going to bring him. Mm -hmm. uh, the mayor, I think, at the time didn't want Dr. King to come. Uh, and several other preachers had said, he ain't coming up here. We don't mm -hmm. need no outsider coming mm -hmm. up here. Uh, small group of people were bold enough to say, nah, he going to come. Mm -hmm. And he going to come in my church. Mm -hmm. And he going to speak. And you ain't going to do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't take those positions right now. And we've got to. Uh, we've got to figure out, and I, I'm, I'm completely like you. People say uh, he running the clique. No, I just run with people who work, mm -hmm. uh, who not afraid to show up, who when I pick up the phone and say, hey, brother, this is what's going on. Are you in? That it ain't no shucking and jiving and I got to think about it and all that. I got to sleep on it, pray about it. No, is, <laughs> is it right? Is it wrong? Yeah. Uh, if it's right. I'm with you. If it's wrong, nah, I'm good. I've had my homeboys say, nah, G, that ain't the fight we need to do right now. And I've been man enough to recognize that sometimes I, I'm uh, charged up and ready to go, uh, and I need to take a pause and listen to my brothers at arms and say, you know what, maybe this ain't the fight, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that we get anywhere warring with people about what they won't do. OK, um, so if you notice, because I come from the church, I'm rarely critical of the church. Mm -hmm. um, I rarely speak out and criticize pastors um, because I understand the complexities of being a pastor. I've been disappointed with the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been disappointed with my church mm -hmm. um, and, and dozens of others that that don't fulfill what I believe is our moral obligation to this community. It can't be just praying and fasting. Mm -hmm. uh, there's got to be the practical side of this because when, when, when prayer and fasting cease, God sends us to do some level of work, mm -hmm. right? We got to go out there and do something after the prayer and fasting. Yeah. Um, and so I just don't, I ain't, I ain't got time to be fighting with uh, folk about what they don't want to do or what they do want to do, uh, whether that's an activist, a pastor, a politician. Um, and what people have seen with me is um, if I don't like what you're doing, um, I'm going to challenge it some kind of way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so whether that is to challenge you to go find somebody else to replace you, to move into a different group of people to get something done, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. And I'm going I'm about finding out how. Yeah. I I think that 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 uh, over the span of the time that we've known each other about 3 years, get on close to 4 years. I think I've 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 seen a growth in you personally. Uh uh I think I've seen a change in in tactics, uh, uh, I, I I don't mind saying when you first told me you were thinking about running for 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 state senate, I told you I didn't think that was the right thing for you to do. I I, I didn't see the 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 attitude of a politician uh, uh, in you, uh, but I'm hearing different things. And, uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm open to the fact that I'm hearing different things. Uh, 
I normally close these by asking, but I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway so that you can say what you want to say on it. I, I, I have a lot of young people who come across. I use this podcast as a way of holding conversations that I can't hold on Sunday morning or on Wednesday and to learn from people that I think have something to teach. Uh, and I normally end, there's normally somebody young uh, who has their future in front of them who just graduated from high school in 2004, and, you know, <laughs> young folks. Do you, do you see yourself staying in Baton Rouge? Do, do you see Baton Rouge as being the place where you want to plant your flag? Your daughter is, is a beautiful young lady. I've met her a couple of times. Do you want your daughter to live in Baton Rouge? Would that be, I mean, obviously it's her choice, but, but would you feel good about her living in this city? So, I ain't going nowhere. I will die here uh, unless I'm on a plane somewhere else and just happen to die in another city, bring my bones back home. Um, my real dad, Gary, lives in Jacksonville, uh, but he has already told us when he dies, bring him home. This is our soil, right? Um, I believe that uh, the best that ever come out of the, the, the world, come out of this place, uh, whether or not the rest of the world agrees with me, I don't really care much um, because everything I know about life, I learned here. I learned from people here. Um, and I, I literally get emotional about this city because I love it, right? Um, I'm often disappointed in it. Uh, I'm often pissed off at it, uh, often uh, frustrated in all of the emotions that other people are. Uh, when you go to other cities and you see certain things, you're like, man, why we don't have that at home? And that's why I'm running for office, um, because I believe we can have that. But I think that it doesn't happen if we don't have courageous leaders who, who come together and figure out how do we get it done, um, who tell our young people that you've got to toil the field in order to produce the harvest, um, that it ain't going to happen by no pie in the sky just flying in and solving all our problems. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of rebuilding communities, um, that Dallas didn't happen overnight, that Houston and Austin didn't happen overnight, Atlanta didn't happen overnight. I'll tell them stories about a man named Maynard Jackson from Atlanta, Georgia, who ran for Senate, uh, U.S. Senate, who lost and then ran for uh, the deputy mayor position and then the mayor of Atlanta. He got elected in 1972. And what he did as mayor of Atlanta in 72 is what produced the black metropolis that exists uh, decades later, right? Mm -hmm. That if you put the right people in the right positions at the right time with the right resources, change will come. Uh, and so because I've seen other black leaders do it in other places, I'm crazy enough to believe that we can do it here. And so I'm putting myself in a position and asking people to join me to make this a place that our babies can live. I say that all the time because I don't want my little girl who's nine right now to go anywhere else. But I'm realistic enough to know that I got about 10 years <laughs> to get something done to right. keep her here. Right. Um, and so if I wait, right, there were people who said, well, Gary, why don't you wait to run, right? Why don't you give uh, the person who's in the position the opportunity to serve another eight years? Well, in eight 
years, my baby gonna graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. And if I don't do something drastic now to change this community and the trajectory of it, to change Southern University, to make my baby wanna choose that HBCU, right? To, to change North Baton Rouge, to make the, the community around Southern University look like something that's a college town where kids wanna go and thrive, where my baby doesn't have to go to South Baton Rouge to live in an apartment, because I don't wanna live in with me, go and live your life, right? <laughs> Uh, but but in truth, um, if I don't get started now, the question you ask about, do I want my child to live here? I want her to live here all her days. Mm -hmm. I want her to see the world, experience the world, and, and know that everything in the world is at her fingertips to go and see and touch, but come back home here. Right. I want her roots to be here because um, this is where we're from, you know. And I don't want, I, there's a quote that says, grow where you planted, and I intend to do that. I appreciate you taking the time to come by and share with us today. Uh, hope you'll come back again real soon. Do good, seek justice, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for viewing. We'll be back again next time.